0: Thank you for tuning in to the Meridian Friends Church podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss any of the sermons posted each week. You can also find more information about our church at www.meridianfriends.org or on Facebook or Instagram by searching Meridian Friends Church. Now, enjoy the sermon. Good morning, church family. I really appreciate the chance to sing some Christmas songs, don't you? Thank you for picking some that are very familiar and some that are not. Because I think the less familiar ones to me make me really think about those words, don't they to you? I'm grateful um, for our focus. And we sing out of obedience, don't we? It's the Lord's idea that we get together, that we sing and that we exalt him uh, in this way. Jesus Christ is worthy of the gift of worship. I don't know that we always think about the fact that Christ is present, that Christ is here, but it changes everything, doesn't it? We're here to honor our King together. With that thought, with that heart, I wanna invite you to turn to Matthew chapter two. And I'm gonna pick up today right where we left off in Matthew chapter two. Last week, we looked at the first half of this chapter in Matthew's Christmas account of what happened as Jesus is born. I wanna pick up the second half of Matthew chapter two which, to be honest, isn't as popular in terms of the Christmas pageants or Sunday school flannel graphs, etc., etc. And I think you'll see why when you read what Matthew had to say. But I think for us, particularly as adults, as, as we think about something that's become over years so familiar to us, it's important for us to recognize what Matthew is saying to us about the arrival of Christ in the middle of a very broken world. Would you stand with me as you're able? And as I read from Matthew two, and what's often called the flight of the Holy Family as they exited to Egypt, I wanna invite you just to listen for the hand of God's provision and God's Christmas providence over his plan and be encouraged. So beginning with one of these verses right here where it says they, verse 13. When they had gone, who is they? It's the wise men, right? When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet of Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel, and Rachel's always associated with Bethlehem. She's believed when she gave birth to twins to have died there. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, Sounds like they might have raised him in the Jerusalem area. Did you know that? Kind of interesting. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. How come? So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Aren't you thankful for God's bigger plans? Please be seated. <clears throat> I love reading this because it helps me to think about Christmas. I'll put it this way. Christmas in the real world. I brought a painting with me today as I offer my message and to you it may not look like a traditional Christmas painting, am I right? It's right here and it depicts what is called the flight, uh, this escape down to Egypt and Matthew is the only Gospel writer who records it and he offers it. Now the first time that I saw this was five years ago, this particular image. And I thought to myself, wow, what is that? It was startling to me. Maybe it is to you as you look at it if you've never seen this particular image before. It's kind of startling to think. Now, I was in Egypt, and I was thinking that these vendors had gone overboard in trying to sell goods to Christians. There's Joseph, there's Mary, there's baby Jesus next to the pyramids. And I thought, that's so shameless because the pyramids are a tourist trap and they're, they're trying to demonstrate, you know. And I talked to our guide about it, who was a deeply committed Christian. And in that area, that really means something. He's a Coptic Christian, but he's also an Egyptologist and a historian. And he said, you know, Ken, it's more than likely that they saw the pyramids. He explained the geography of it where they came from, where they went to, where the only civilization was that they could have fled to, to find refuge. There's no way they went and camped out in a desert. (laughs) And I thought to myself, well, isn't that something? There were so many things about going to the Holy Lands that you don't see in the flannel graphs, (laughs) that you think, how could that be? But actually what it did for me, And I had to have the picture in understanding this. What it did for me is it helped me to to stop and appreciate that Jesus Christ was born into the real world. Christ was born into a secular history. And you know that because of Luke's gospel, right? It says, you know, at that time, Quirinius was governor. And of all things, what were they doing? They were were levying taxes, right? Some things haven't changed, right? (laughs) They were levying taxes and and it offers that. We know that Herod was this ruler over this area of Judea at that time. Lots of evidence historically of Herod and who he was and what he did. and Everything that's recorded in the Bible is so, so consistent with this guy who was tyrannical and paranoid and very violent. Not only as you read about in Matthew, there were too many violent things to record about Herod not only sought to kill the children in Bethlehem or in um, the area of Judea, Bethlehem included, he not only sought to kill them out of his paranoia that the Magi said a king had come, he not only did that, he killed his own mother, he killed his wife, he killed his kids because he was paranoid that they were out plotting against him to overthrow his power. Why do I say that? It doesn't sound like a Merry Christmas, does it? It doesn't sound like a Christmas carol. It doesn't sound like sentimentality and warmth. But to me, it reminds me that Jesus Christ, the hope and the peace, the Prince of Peace of this world, was born in the middle of the mess. He was born into an actual place at an actual time. It makes me realize, you know, there wouldn't have been a time that God in his sovereignty and wisdom on this planet, the way it is, could have carried it out at what you might think of as an ideal time. We do that, don't we? Circumstances aren't right, so I'm not going to move forward. (laughs) I mean, when are circumstances going to be perfect? But God broke in to a specific place and a specific time within a specific era of history. And I think that's what jarred me about seeing Jesus in pyramids. Was just really thinking about the fact that God showed up on this planet. And then the guy kind of had some fun with this. Okay, so did Joseph see the pyramids? So did Abraham see the pyramids? Do you know the answers to this? The answer is actually yes. (laughs) The pyramids were only 500 years old when Abraham would have come down there seeking refuge. It's interesting, isn't it? And we know that Joseph saw him. I mean, he was in power. Really fascinating to think about. I know for me, um, that's something that I appreciate the most about going to these places is seeing it in 3D And, and not only reading about the Bible, but placing myself where emotionally, I'm just more connected. Do you know what I mean? You're standing there, you're thinking about this reality. This is a famous painting. It's actually displayed right now in Hearst Castle. It was painted in 1886. Does anybody have an idea of who that is in front of the Great Sphinx of Giza? It's Napoleon. And he was there in Egypt, of course, they didn't have (laughs) photography, but he was there (laughs) during the French occupation which only lasted three years around the turn of the century in 1800. And he's depicted that way. Do you notice that he's shoulder level with the Sphinx? That's actually accurate because it wasn't uncovered at that point. It was only uncovered 100 years ago. Kind of interesting stuff. It just made me think more. Wait a minute, Napoleon was here. And I asked our new guy this year, was that true? Was he really here? I says, yeah, 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 he was here. here." This isn't just propaganda (laughs) to sell to Americans. (laughs) This is history. And what we just read in the scripture is history. What we just read in the scripture occurred on our planet. Today I want to talk about Christmas in the real world. Now that, one of those, you can tell which one, the black and white, is an actual photograph that appeared in a travel magazine. That's one of the very first photographs of the Sphinx. And so there's your sand at the shoulder level as they're beginning to work on it. And then on the other side is a very imaginative painting of the holy family there. And it's probably too small to really see it. But that's Mary in the crook of the Sphinx. Something to think. And by the way, I don't know if you probably know this, but the Sphinx is next to the Great Pyramids. You know this, right? It's right there. It's, it's there. And so if you see one, you see the other. They're just so big, you can't miss them. <laughs> Anywhere you're going, you're going to see those. Those. And the only place to live was along the Nile River because the rest of it was just a pretty barren desert. (laughs) I want us to think about Christmas in the real world. In fact, I want us to think about Christmas in the midst of a very evil real world. A lot of times when we think about the incarnation and we just sang about it, God becoming flesh, we marvel, don't we, that the God preexistent, the creator of all, immeasurably powerful and knowing fit into the skin of a baby. And, and I think that's important for us to think about. We think about that, and two weeks ago, I preached from John 1, right? I gave you his Christmas story, and that's what we talked about some. But maybe even more amazing is not only this scientific feat, but this moral feat of an infinitely holy God taking on human flesh in the midst of the filth of humanity with regard to our morality and the violence that's all around us. So this is part of the Christmas story we don't talk about too much, but Herod in his paranoia, attempted to put an end to Jesus with infanticide. All of the boys in that vicinity under two. And we can only imagine the pain and the devastation and how unthinkable that is. But I want you to see something. We think our world is bad today. It is and you look at this event that happened 2000 years ago and you have to ask yourself, is it any worse? Jesus is present in the midst of something atrocious. Now, when we think about what would that look like for a perfect God to come into a very imperfect world? What would we get out of that? I think a lot of times what we want out of a love of God and a relationship with him and accepting his peace and his hope is an, it's an absence of something. So Jesus is born the Prince of Peace. Peace means a lot of things to a lot of people, right? For a lot of us, we hope that peace means the end of something, like the end of a war or the end of a conflict or the absence of something, like the absence of my health crisis or, you know, if you're a mom of a baby, and you're going through a baby with colicky nights. I want, I want silence. I want a silent night. <laughs> I want the absence to the, uh, the, I want the end and the absence of this crying. We all have things in our lives that, that we want to see the end to. We sort of associate that with what Jesus will bring us. I want to tell you something as I think about Christmas in the real world. Christmas does not yet end our present suffering, does it? Just sit with that for a second. Sit with what Matthew just said about the greatest hope and the greatest promise and the greatest potential and the greatest news ever heard to this point, that God is flesh and dwelling among us and the next thing that he says, besides this worship which is so appropriate of the wise men who come and they, they bow down and they adore him and maybe even anoint him with what he's going to be doing in going to the cross and, and those beautiful things we talked about last week, we go from that picture which we like at the manger scene to this picture of bloody violence and a world that ignores Jesus and is still wrapped up in, in earthly things and circumstances and power and greed and jealousy and strife. And in a strange way, for me, I, ha- I have to say, it's actually good news. Because we sometimes look at our lives and think, well, you know, my life isn't absent of problems. God must have let me down. I must not be faithful enough. Th- there must be something wrong with the way I'm approaching my faith. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the messes we're in are a product of our own creation, amen? We all have something to learn from the messes we're in. I'm I'm not giving us permission to blame our problems on something else, but I am saying that this world is really messy. It always has been. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only son or a bigger plan. So so what if Christmas hope? What if Christmas peace? What if the life of Christ living inside of his church does not necessarily look like an absence of problems? What if it doesn't necessarily look like the end of something here and now that we hope for? And believe me, we should hope for the end of a lot of things. I'm <laughs> not against that either. What if God is sovereign enough to break into human history in such a way that he can bring real peace in the midst of the conflict? See, I don't think Christmas necessarily is the end of something. I think Christmas is the beginning of something. Christmas means that Jesus is present inside of the mess. In spite of the circumstances, in spite of what we see, in spite of what we experience in this world, by faith we know God loves us. By faith we know that God has a bigger plan that was born from all time to become flesh and become into this world and perfection to take on flesh and to live among us. Man, if that's not grace... I don't know what is because we don't deserve it. God doesn't wait for these chosen people who've been struggling and sinning and divided and have all these problems. He doesn't wait for them to clean up their act before he breaks in with the advent of Christmas, with the advent of hope, with the advent of peace in the midst of it. How about us? Are are we experiencing Christ in the midst of it? Jesus born during an infanticide. Over the centuries, historians have noted that Christmas has been marked by many tragedies and sufferings. One historian named Robert Blankenship refers to this as Herod's rage. And I wanna read this to you, and, and I, and I wanna invite you, not as a holy flight of ignoring problems, and your faith being this escape from the real world. Instead, I want to invite you to think about your problems here. I want to invite you to think about your uncertainties. I want you to think about the evil in this world here because Christ is here. Here's what he writes. I think of other Christmases and how the spirit of Herod has lived on in more recent times in our own nation's history. On Christmas Eve of 1776, George Washington and his men were crossing the Delaware River on a frigid night to launch a sneak attack. Soon they would be retreating to Valley Forge. Many men would die, and those who lived would leave the blood from their frozen feet in the snow. King George was determined not to let the American colonies be free and independent, so Washington's men had to suffer and fight and die like this, and he writes, call it Herod's Rage, Christmas Eve, 1776. On Christmas Day, 1861, Abraham Lincoln was sitting upstairs in the White House watching his 10-year-old son die. Downstairs, a committee of Congress was debating whether or not to arrest Mrs. Lincoln in a, as a Southern sympathizer and a national security risk since her brothers were fighting for the South and her sister was married to a Confederate general. There's always been scandal in politics, folks. This is not new. Some of the bloodiest battles in history had already been fought in the Civil War, and even bloodier battles were to come. That's Christmas Day, 1861. Call it Herod's Rage. On Christmas Day in 1944, the German Luftwaffe was mercilessly bombing the beleaguered 101st Airborne. The frozen bodies of 8,600 GIs were laying in the snow The Battle of the Bulge would continue. Call it Herod's Rage. During the Christmas season in 1972, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger unleashed the most brutal bombings in the Southeast Asian War, the so-called Christmas bombings of what was then North Vietnam. In just a matter of weeks, they would leave Vietnam accepting virtually the same peace terms that were negotiated at the table before the bombings began. But in one final fury, there was more devastation, more civilians killed, and more pilots lost. All of it happened at Christmas time. Call it Herod's Rage. One more. On December 26, 2004, a tsunami strikes the Indian Ocean, killing tens of thousands of people in a dozen countries. Call it Herod's Rage. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Born among us is the prince of peace. And don't be surprised that if in this world you have tribulation. Don't be surprised if in this world there is violence and conflict and difficulty. We are a people called to live by faith. Not in the things that we see. And oh, how we try to do that. How we try to reconcile the mess of this world with what we think ought to be happening. We're really good at blaming, aren't we? We're even good at spiritualizing it. And the interesting thing about spiritualizing it is we're, we're always the innocent ones, right? We're always the ones who, you know, God is on our side. But this world's a mess. And God so loves you and I who are a mess. God so loves his church. God so loves Egyptians. God so loves the people in his day. God so loves the people now. God so loves the, the generation that's coming. I don't remember which politician in the 50s said, blessed are the young, they will inherit the national debt. Right? <laughs> There's still mess in this world. There it is. But we live by faith. And, and I want to ask you this Christmas, I know that Christmas can be filled with pressure. I know that what we read in scripture is very dramatic compared to our problems. Would you agree with that, by the way? Can we just stop and say that? We we tend to overreact sometimes to the problems we have in our lives. Am I right? Once in a while. Maybe not you, just me. (laughs) My problems are huge (laughs) in my brain. Until I look at it through a different lens. And And I'm almost jolted to the reality that God walked the real world, can grow up, get outside of yourself. Look with perspective at something bigger than your own problems. Am I just preaching to myself here? Okay. There is hope in this. You know, Matthew, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, something you need to keep in mind is that he's always writing to a Jewish audience, right? You know this, right? Out of the four Gospels, he's writing to people who understand the Old Testament. He's showing them that Jesus is the Messiah, that's Matthew, that's, that's what he does. And so I'm sure you noticed as we were reading, it said, in, in order to fulfill, in order to fulfill, as said by the prophet Jeremiah, those kind of things. I think what can help us when we are struggling with the real world, wait a minute, am I the only one struggling with the real world? I don't think so. Is to look back at God's promises and plans. And I see Matthew doing that for us in his narrative of the Christmas story. Besides offering the genealogy of Jesus and the organized genealogy of Jesus, this is one of my favorite Christmas sermons. Besides besides offering that framework of history that Matthew offers right here in chapter 2, he's referring to scriptures. Do you notice it? Well, so what? Well, what it means is is that God knew this was coming. I called my firstborn out of Egypt. Why? Because I knew there would be this attempt at destroying Jesus by killing thousands of innocents. And this is called the, the killing of the innocents, Right? it's one of Mary's seven woes. Jacob read Mary's Magnificat, the song of Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. Isn't it amazing that Mary's soul magnifies the Lord after all that she experienced, after all that she saw, after all that she had to endure. I think about Joseph and Mary, they're they're incredible. They hear the angel say, you're going to give birth and well, nobody will understand it because you're not married yet. Etc., 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 and my soul magnifies the Lord, and all of the piercings that her soul would receive. And this is one of them, and of course, the cross, and etc. Oh, Ken, put your life in perspective. <laughs> yeah, I want Christmas to be holly and jolly and bright, and I want everybody to be happy. I want to get the gifts that I want, by the way. but how does that compare to a God who bled on a cross and died for me? How does that compare to something eternal, to something bigger, to something more important than us? Don't you agree? Could you look back as an encouragement at God's plans and God's promises. When was God faithful to you? There's some really fascinating stuff about this passage, and and I kind of like the Bible, and so I want to show it to you. (laughs) It reminds us that evil will never stop God's plans. Amen? Amen. Evil will never stop God's plans. Do you believe it? If you believe it, turn to somebody and tell them that. Do you believe it? I mean, it's kind of a big statement these days, don't you think? Look at this. (laughs) Egypt has always been a place of Old Testament refuge. And and Matthew knows that, right? Uh, He's the Old Testament guy, and he's connecting the Jewish scriptures to this new event that's happened with the birth of Jesus. Egypt has always been a logical place of refuge. And, And Matthew's listeners, his readers, not many of those, but his, his listeners at that time, they would have known that. Oh yeah, it reminds me of Joseph. By the way, God spared the nation through the famine by sending Joseph in a rather unpleasant way to Egypt. Jeroboam, when he was threatened by Solomon with his life, fled to Egypt to be spared, right? And then, then when it was safe to come back after Solomon died, he came and there's this division with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And, well, the nation's always been a mess, right? And then Jeremiah fled for his life as well, down to Egypt. It's, it's always been a place of refuge. Can you look back to times in your life where God rescued you? And is there any reason to think he won't do it again? I, I like what Matthew's doing. He, he's pointing to God's faithfulness in the past. Do you see it? By the way, again, Matthew's the only gospel author to include this detail in there. You won't, you won't find it in the Christmas story in Luke, etc., etc. How about this one? Here's a huge parallel. I'm sure you thought of it when you first heard Egypt connected to Herod killing babies. Are you with me? Does that sound familiar? How about another madman in history trying to wipe out God's plan, the Pharaoh? What did he do? He ordered that all the babies would be killed by throwing them into the Nile. But, did you know evil can't stop God's plans for good? Remember what happened? Their savior, Moses, was rescued. In a rather dramatic way, don't you think? And God can do that. God can orchestrate the fulfillment of his plans for people who live by faith. And don't look at the circumstances as the barometer of God's control. I, I love what Matthew's doing and, and these are just beautiful themes running throughout Scripture. This is low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, you thought about it. <laughs> I'm sure. It's there on purpose. Moses is a Christ type and so forth. I'm going to go to a Sunday school class. We'll talk all about it. We'll nerd out on the Scripture, right? It's really cool stuff. There's so many parallels. And, and I just think about that for us practically. How can we Look back as a church family. We have 60 years of history come February. How can we look back and see God's faithfulness and honoring steps of obedience? How have we come through difficulty? How did God orchestrate that? And can we look back on that? How about for your marriage? How about for your family? How about with your kids? Evil will never stop God's ultimate plans. Aren't you thankful? It's a bigger picture, isn't it? It's like looking at the pyramids. It's like, wow, how did those get there? I also want to make a couple of remarks just about looking forward with hope. You know, it's one thing to say that there is hope and we can live by faith, but what does that look like? That's actually a picture I took a few weeks ago in Bethlehem. Does that look like the Bethlehem you know? I didn't see anybody wearing... Um, the Christmas pageant sandals and bathrobes that (laughs) we like. It's a modern city. It's not what you expect, but there it is. What does this look like for us in our lives, in the real world? Well, what I see here is is a beautiful model or example in Joseph and Mary, don't you? How do we experience God's hope and peace right now? One thing I notice about this couple is they just keep listening. Their whole lives have been rocked, turned upside down, to say the least, right? Maybe they think, now that the wise men have come and venerated Jesus, that everybody's gonna fall in line. Not, not so much. Maybe because they believe that's true, now they have big problems. And it's Joseph again, did you notice? This isn't the famous visitation of the angel to Joseph, but here's another one in Matthew 2. The angel visits Joseph again and tells him, go down to Egypt, fear for your life. God's intervention is is all through this. God warns the Magi, don't go back that way, don't tell them. God puts this all together. But isn't it incumbent that we listen to God? He's so available. He's willing to hear him. He's willing to trust him. The holidays don't seem to go well with a silent night, do they? It's chaotic. Are you feeling the pressure? You don't you don't have to be you don't have to confess. I know I do at times. All the pressure of this season, all the expectations, all that we think it should be. Are we quieting our soul? before God? Are we listening? Or Would we be open if he showed up and said, here's what you need to do? This is a couple who stayed faithful. It's a quiet faithfulness. What I notice about them is there's no argument dialogue here. Do you notice it too? Elsewhere in scripture, when God calls somebody, oftentimes There's just, wait a minute, I can't do this. You got the wrong person. Don't you know this is a bad circumstance? Not good timing for me. Blah, blah, blah. This isn't going to work. Have you met the Egyptians? None of that here. Even though, like Moses or other ones, they're heroes. Joseph. You never have him with a line in the Christmas program, am I right? I mean, if you're... If you're a kid in the program, I mean this is the role to get if you don't like to talk. Right? Just gonna stand there and walk around, stop at the right times, kneel down, you're done. <laughs> There's no lines. He handles it with such grace. Mary's the star of the show, isn't he? Isn't she? She is the star of the show. Believe me, this is incredible sacrifice for Joseph. He's humble. He's quiet, there's no argument. He listens, he obeys, he does what God says to do. I like that, don't you? Something to be said for that. Like I said, again, you know, if I have a problem, you're gonna hear about it. And then choose your focus. And I see that that's what they're doing. Their focus is their obedience to whatever God has told them to do, period. I think that's how we experience Christ at Christmas. We talk a lot about it, right? We Talk a lot about what Christmas is really all about, but there it is. Meridian friends, are you focused on hope today? I'm gonna read this list and walk us into just a moment of reflection and silence. I'm gonna invite you to choose your focus on hope today. Does that sound good? Good way to send you forward? So I asked you this question with our email listserv a few days ago and a lot of you responded. My question was simple, why do you have hope? I'm just gonna simply read these responses and then leave us in a time of thinking about God's hope. Why do you have hope, Meridian friends? Here's what you said. Man, and I'll tell you, friends are not always really vocal into the microphone. There's something kind of good about that too, don't you think? We're a quiet bunch like Joseph. You're not quiet on email. Here you go. Why do you have hope? Because Jesus knows what I'm going through. Because he's always been faithful. Because he's given me salvation, physical healing, ongoing purpose, a family of believers in love. Because my eternal home is in heaven regardless of current events down here. Because he's redeemed me, he's called me by name and I am his. Where's our focus? Because God has a purpose for my pain and all I have to do is be his witness. How about this long one? Because I've seen the miraculous works of God in the birth of the quadruplets. Ken, feel free to share my name others will know, it's me, Chris, in sustaining their lives and for sparing the life of my daughter, Alicia, when she died after giving birth. I have hope because of the work the Lord is doing in me as I grow as a wife, mother, and Mimi. He gives me hope every day to spread the good news of what he has done in my life. Why do you have hope? Because Jesus' life showed me what the world could be like. His death showed me how much he loved me. His resurrection showed me that I have nothing to fear. His Holy Spirit helps me to show those truths to others like me. Because when the day comes to go home, I know without a doubt I will meet Jesus face to face. Because of the message of Christ. He died and rose to save me and all of us. But I also have the hope reinforced through a lifetime of struggle, danger and difficulties. I do not even know how many times I've cried out to him, sought him, even raged at him, fell at the, feet of the, at the foot of the cross and later, once the storm literally or figuratively passed, at some point, I would see Christ there with me on the other side and back through all of it I have hope because I've been through storms and suffering with Christ seeing me through holding me keeping me safe showing me the next step assuring me that he is God one person sent me an entire page of quotes from their advent devotional on hope love that it's too long to read but I love that I have hope because of Hebrews 6.19, which says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I have hope because in a world that seems increasingly chaotic and is easily led astray by the latest message, I have the steadfast, unchanging word of God, the reality of the gift of his son and his promises that stand not only the test of time, but all eternity. Hope means looking forward with confidence, someone wrote, and complete trust. There's only one who literally died for me and took away my sin. Jesus said I would be with him, that he would prepare a place for me in this crazy world. The only hope I have with complete confidence is in Jesus. How about this one? Working with the rescue mission brings me hope. I see the meaning of hope there. When you're down and out thinking that this is your faith, fate. And then a hand up is offered. Determination to rise up is restored. And then he writes, hey, when the big guy's rooting for you, how can you not have hope? I have hope because God has me in his arms and I trust that. I have hope because of my faith and belief in Jesus and his life and teaching. Let's take a moment to listen what the Lord may be speaking to you personally. Celebrate his hope. Choose your focus today. I'll close this in just a moment.